may be around the world, and thank you for joining us once again on truthtou.org. That's truth2letteryou.org. Joining me is the Director of Education and Counseling for Jews for Judaism in Canada. The website is jewsforjudaism.ca. Jewsforjudaism.ca. Welcome back to the program, Rabbi Michael Skobak. So good to be here, Jono. Marvelous to have you back, my friend. We are continuing to investigate the alleged 365 messianic prophecies in the Tanakh that Jesus supposedly fulfilled in the New Testament. This is part three uh, of the book of Daniel, isn't it? It really is part three. (laughs) I think it is part three. I think it is. Now, last week we did go through, uh, it was verses 24 and 25 of chapter 9. Uh, this week, you would like to delve a little deeper into uh, verses uh, verse 25 before we move on to 26, which really is a, a, a book all of, its, all of its own. But I'll just uh, bring the, the listeners up to speed. Verse 24, I'll just read from there. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for the holy city to finish transgression, to make an end of sins to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until, now I've got in the New King James, until until Messiah the Prince, and that's capitalized in the New King James in the Christian translation, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks the street shall be rebuilt again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. And this is where we're up to. Now, before we get on to verse 25 and delve deeper into there, my friend, would you recap on, on what we did touch on last week? Yes, let's try to do this uh, briefly, but at least to get everyone on the same page. And I wanted to uh, make a public service announcement that it's really essential uh, for listeners and students to try and follow along on a timeline um, it, because it, it's going to be very difficult to really uh, keep your head above waters unless you can actually see where we are along this timeline and I'll be providing uh, the relevant dates so you'll be able to put together a simple chart and if you just review the simple chart or actually have it in front of you as you're going through these this series uh, it'll make life a lot easier. Um, uh, part of what will be confusing, I think, it was very confusing to me, is that we're going to be focusing on a period of time that's before the common era. And so what happens is instead of later years being larger numbers, like we know that you know, the year 1990 comes after the year 1980. Mm-hmm. We're, we're familiar with that. But when you're before the common era, later years will actually be smaller numbers. So, for example, 400 BCE comes before 300 BCE. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost like trying to put your tie on looking into a mirror. Everything is backwards and it's not so Yeah, easy. no, it's impossible. That's exactly what <laughs> It's exactly like that. <laughs> so, I think having a timeline uh, as you're going through this will make, uh, make all the difference in the world. So, as you just read verse 24... Um, and again, we're going to see in a few minutes that this is part of the problem that the missionary reading here is a jumping right into the end of chapter 9, going right to mm-hmm. verse 24. We'll have to go back and look at the context soon. But in verse 24, Daniel is told about a period 
of 490 years that will be critical in order to put an end to all sin, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to confirm the visions of the prophets, and to anoint the Holy of Holies. Um, Obviously, none of these things have transpired, and so it's very clear that Jesus did not fulfill um, these promises. Um, Now, verse 25, chapter 9, verse 25, uh, in the list that we're going through, so the claim is made that this verse prophesied the exact day and year in which the Messiah would come and be presented to his people, and that Jesus came on that very day. Mm. Um, So that's a pretty impressive-sounding prophecy. And we saw last time that we met that there were actually many, many problems with this claim. And we'll just review some of the major ones. We're not going to go through everything we did last time. So number one... Uh, it's very clear that if this really were such a prophecy that Jesus fulfilled, it would be really the most impressive messianic prophecy imaginable. Mm. Uh, The New Testament cites dozens of extremely lame fulfillment passages, uh, and it's therefore inexplicable that it leaves this one out, meaning in the entire New Testament, there's not one place where it says, and Jesus came into Jerusalem on this day, which is exactly to the hour when uh, Daniel prophesied the Messiah would come. That should have been in highlighted. It should have been front and center. Um, and it's also strange, I pointed out, that um, other sources of messianic fulfillment leave it out as well. So in the second century, Justin Martyr, in his famous dialogue with Trifo the Jew, has hundreds of messianic prophecies Jesus fulfilled. He doesn't mention Daniel 9. And in 1991, when Moshe Rosen, the head of Jews for Jesus, wrote his book Overture to Armageddon, he has his list of the 61 you know, significant messianic prophecies fulfilled by Jesus. He doesn't mention Daniel chapter 9. And it's also important for the listeners to realize that there are numerous Christian commentaries to the book of Daniel that simply don't consider this passage to be a messianic prophecy. That's problem number one. Problem number two is that we saw, we, we, we know from the end of the book, from the end of chapter 12 in Daniel, that God did not want Daniel to reveal any precise timeline about when the Redeemer and the redemption would come. God specifically tells Daniel to seal up and seal conceal up. the vision. Um, so it, it wouldn't be that here in chapter 9... God is telling the angel to give him the exact date. Um, The third problem, this is where it gets a little bit confusing, but we'll try and go through it clearly. Um, The way uh, this this, uh, Christian claim is, is reading verse 25, the way they're reading it is that an anointed one, which they say is the Messiah, mm-hmm. would come after a period of seven and 62 weeks of years. Mm-hmm. Um, again, a week of years would be seven years. So seven and 62 weeks of years would be 69 weeks of years, which is 483 years. So the, mm-hmm. the way the verse is being read is that after 483 years, this anointed one, the Messiah, would come. And then we'll see next time that we meet, as the list maker will go to verse 26, where they say that in verse 26, we're told that this very anointed one will be cut off. Now, this is actually a total misreading. It's a mangling of these two verses. What verse 25 actually says is that an anointed ruler would come after a period of seven weeks of years, or 49 years, 
And this would be followed by a period of 62 weeks of years, which is 434 years. And during this period of 434 years, Jerusalem will be built, but in very troubled times. So what verse 25 is saying is that this anointed ruler, this Messiah, will come after 49 years, not after 434 years. Mm -hmm. Then verse 26 says that after these 62 weeks of years transpire, which means after these 434 years, an anointed one, doesn't say an anointed ruler, by the way, just as an anointed one in verse 26, Mm -hmm. will be cut off and then the city will be destroyed. That's the summary of what happens in verses 25 and 26. So the major error, the major mistake here is that the Christian um, argument basically takes these two periods of time describing two different anointed people. Again, Mm -hmm. one who comes, one anointed ruler who comes after 49 years, and then an anointed one who comes 434 years later and is cut off. So rather than having two periods of time describing two different anointed ones, the the Christian argument here um, basically compresses this into one period of time where there's simply an anointed ruler who comes after 483 years and then he's cut off. Mm-hmm. That's problem number one. Now, if it was really trying to tell us, if when you read verse 25, it's trying to tell us about an anointed one who will come after a period of 69 weeks of years, that's 483 years, it would not have expressed that period of time by saying that he'll come after 7 and 62 weeks of years. That's simply not how the number 69 is ever expressed in any language. Mm. Meaning if, if, if the angel here was telling Daniel that there was going to be an anointed ruler coming after 69 weeks of years, it would have simply said 60, which is in Hebrew it's one number, 60, shishim, mm-hmm. and then it would say tesha, 60 and then 9. But this verse doesn't say 60 plus 9. It speaks about 7 weeks of years and then 62 weeks of years. Now, a very clear proof that the 62 weeks of years is a separate period of time is that when you get to the next verse, verse 26, that verse begins by saying, and after the 62 62 weeks. And with the definite article, it's the 62 weeks of years. It doesn't say after the 69 weeks of years. Um, we, we again saw last time we met that there was grammatical notations uh, in Hebrew that indicate that that's how verse 25 should be read. There's actually mm-hmm. a semicolon between the 7 and the 62. Uh, another huge problem that we saw with this reading of verse 25 are the actual dates that's used for the timeline, for the chronology. Uh, the calculation of the 483 years, according to this Christian argument, begins, again, they are saying it begins with the letter by King Artaxerxes of Persia to Nehemiah. Many Christians pronounce that as Nehemiah. Um, So there was a letter that was written by Artaxerxes sent to Nehemiah, which they assume to have taken place in the year 444 BCE. And therefore, and and they then uh, begin with that date of 444 BCE, and they calculate their calculations from that starting point. Now, there are numerous problems with this starting date. Problem number one is that if we're talking about uh, a proclamation to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, 
We know that there were several letters of proclamations by Persian leaders allowing the rebuilding of Jerusalem long before this letter that was sent by Artaxerxes, meaning that the scriptures in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah speak about several different decrees and proclamations by Persian rulers to allow the Jewish people to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. This letter by Artaxerxes was actually not concerning the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Jerusalem had already been rebuilt, and it was already inhabited. The letter that is being mentioned here by Artaxerxes was simply a letter giving Nehemiah permission to reinforce the walls and the gates to protect the city, which already had been rebuilt, against Samaritan marauders. Mm -hmm. So, really... Just in terms of choosing an appropriate starting point, uh, the letter by Artaxerxes is simply not uh, the most accurate one to pick. Now, even if we accept that poor starting date, that poor choice for a starting date, uh, meaning even if we accept the, the, uh, <laughs> what the Christian argument here insists is the case, uh, things don't work out for them. Because if we take 444 BCE, and we add this period of 69 weeks of years, which is 483 years, it takes us to the year 39 of the Common Era. There's no one on the planet, no historian, anyone, not even a church historian, who dates the coming of Jesus into Jerusalem to the year 39 CE. Um, so the date simply doesn't work out. And what missionaries are forced to employ is an artificial and bogus fudge factor to try to adjust the date back to 32 CE. And we analyzed this fudge factor at great length last time that we met. Mm. Um, and just, just briefly, it's the uh, turning one year into, instead of 365 days, 360 days, which they refer to as a prophetic year. Exactly. And by sort of getting the years to, to be shorter, um, they're able to get down from 39 CE to 32 CE, um, which you know, meets their needs much you know, more accurately. Mm. Um, now, we concluded last time by showing that, and this is really, I think, the most important thing to be aware of, and I mentioned it before, that the entire missionary reading uh, here just simply ignores the context of what's really going on in chapter 9, because they don't start from the beginning of the chapter. In the beginning of the chapter, starting from chapter 9, verse 1, we're told that this chapter, this story now, is taking place in the first year of the reign of Darius the Mede. And the Medes mm -hmm. were the Persians. And they had just conquered Babylon. The Babylonian Empire had just succumbed, it just fell to the Persian Medes. And that's when this story is taking place. And it was the Babylonians who had destroyed Jerusalem and exiled the Jews. That's why Daniel is sitting in Babylon. Um, mm -hmm. you know, the, the Jews didn't go there on vacation. The, the Babylonians right. came, destroyed Jerusalem, and exiled the Jews. So Daniel, at this point in, in the book of Daniel, was we're told right in the beginning of that chapter 9, Daniel was very perplexed. He was disturbed and bothered because he had been contemplating various prophecies in the book of Jeremiah about a period of 70 years and Babylon. Basically, there were two prophecies he was looking at. In Jeremiah chapter 25... It says that 70 years after Babylon subjugated Israel, meaning that the time when Babylon came and first conquered Israel, so D Jeremiah 25 says that 70 years later, 
Babylon would be destroyed. And verse uh, 11 and 12 in chapter 25 of Jeremiah and chapter 29. At this point, though, just let's be aware of the fact that this prophecy in Jeremiah had just been fulfilled, and Daniel has mm-hmm. witnessed it. Daniel mm-hmm. has seen how the Babylonian Empire has come to naught. It's basically finished. It's been taken over by the Persians. And so when Jeremiah 25 speaks about uh, 70 years of Babylon, after 70 years Babylon would be destroyed, that has come to pass. Mm -hmm. However, Daniel was also familiar with a prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 29, which says that after 70 years for Babylon, God would return the Jewish people to their land. That's verse 10. That's verse 10. Now, Daniel Mm -hmm. assumed, and it's not an absurd assumption, Daniel assumed that these two prophecies were congruent, meaning he assumed that after 70 years from the time that Babylon first conquered Israel, they would be destroyed and Israel would return to their land to build their temple. And that's a, and you have to admit, I mean, I think that's a fair assumption to make. It just turned out that he was incorrect. But that was what his assumption was. It was. And what's really annoying him, and, and not annoying him, but it's bothering him, it's eating at him, is that he has just seen the fulfillment of Jeremiah 25, where the Babylonian kingdom has been taken over by the Persians, it's come to an end, and he was assuming that the Jewish people would be returning to their land right then Mm. and there. The problem is he doesn't see a trace of any of this coming to pass. There's no Mm -hmm. people are not beginning to move to Israel, the people have not been packing their bags, there's no indication that nothing's happening to go back to the land and what is he assuming? He's assuming and terrified that perhaps because of the sins of the people that this promise of returning to Israel, this prophecy in Jeremiah 29, either is being postponed or it's maybe even worse, being nullified. God's just going to call it off. So what happens in the beginning of Daniel chapter 9 is he can't figure out these prophecies. It's really eating at him. So mm-hmm. he begins to confess the sins of the people, and pray for the people. I mean, that, that's really what's happening in this chapter. It's one of the longest prayers in the entire Bible. It's a very beautiful prayer. It's actually found its way into the Jewish daily prayers. And he's really, in effect, asking for understanding of when the people will return to their land. He's confessing any sins. He's praying for forgiveness. And he really wants to know. That's what's inside his heart. When are we going back So the angel Gabriel comes and tells Daniel, look, I'm going to make everything crystal clear to you. You're puzzled, you're perplexed, I'm going to come and make everything clear. And it's this promise of clarity, we saw this last time we spoke, why, this is one of the reasons why the starting date of 444 BCE is so problematic. Again, the entire Christian uh, countdown, getting to what they feel is the time of Jesus coming into Jerusalem, it only works with the fudge factor starting with this year 444 BCE. Mm. The problem is that in order to make any sense out of the angel's clarification, the angel is going to be giving Daniel a lot of clarification, and in order for Daniel to work with those numbers to be able to take the information the angel's giving him, Daniel would have to have access to the starting date of the calculations, meaning that here he's got all these years, all these dates. He doesn't know when's, when is the return to Jerusalem and Israel going to happen. 
the angel comes to give him clarification in terms of how to count and when things will work out. But for Daniel to be able to walk out of that meeting and know how to manipulate the numbers and arrive at any clarity, he'd have to know when is the starting date that the angel is giving me. The problem is that the angel is telling him to count seven weeks of years until an anointed prince would come. Mm -hmm. But the question is, when should he begin counting? When should Daniel start counting these seven weeks of years? Artaxeres' decree to Nehemiah was not going to happen for at least another 35 years, meaning that that letter that Christians point to that they say took place in 444 BCE, that letter was not given, it was not sent to Nehemiah by Artaxeres for another 35 years. Daniel had no idea when that was going to happen. He had no idea when this decree would take place. And so according to the proposed starting date given by these Christians, Daniel would walk out of the meeting with Gabriel the angel and he'd have absolutely zero clarity in terms of what the angel meant. And more importantly, he would have no idea when his people would be going back to Israel. And that was his entire concern. Mm. That was all he was praying for. When are we going back? And the angel comes, I'm going to make it very clear to you. And the way Christians read the passage, he would have zero clarity. That's as far as we got last week. Mm. So I hope that this has not been too confusing. But for those people who don't think it was confusing enough, (laughs) I'm now going to speak about the elephant in the room that will make the Artaxeres starting date even more problematic. Oh, wow. Okay, I've got my calculator ready. Go for it. Oh, you don't need a calculator for this. <laughs> oh, what, what do I need? You just need to have your seatbelt on. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Okay. All right, we're, we're ready to go. What's the elephant in the room? The elephant in the room is, what are authentic dates in Jewish history? There's been an ongoing dispute between Jewish and secular historians, for example, about when the first temple was destroyed. So, all non-Jewish historians maintain, they insist that the first Jewish temple was destroyed in the year 586 BCE. However, Jewish sources place the date of the first temple's destruction later, at 423 BCE. About a hundred difference. About 160 years approximately later. Mm. Right? Don't forget that 586 is earlier than 423 because it's BCE. It's before the mm-hmm. Common Era. Okay. Now, how do you resolve this? It's a long-standing dispute. You know, I would say, look, it's our history. We know the dates better. Um, mm-hmm. A really, really important book came out recently, which I recommend highly, uh, by a British rabbi named Alexander Houle, H-O-O-L. The book is called The Challenge of Jewish History, which presents a very, very strong case, and it has a tremendous amount of documentation from non-Jewish sources for mm-hmm. the traditional Jewish chron- chronology. Um, also, there's a good article that can be accessed online called Fixing the History Books by Brad Aronson. Um, but basically, there is a difference of opinion in terms of setting the dates for many of these occurrences at this time in, in Jewish history. Now, in the traditional Jewish dating system, Nehemiah received permission to reinforce the walls of Jerusalem in the year 335 BCE, not 444 BCE. 335 BCE, again, is about 160 years later. So if you count 483 years 
from the Jewish understanding of when Nehemiah received this permission from Artaxerxes, if you count 483 years from there, you'll get to the year 148 of the Common Era. Ouch! <laughs> that, oh, yeah. Meaning that using the Artaxerxes date for this timeline in Daniel 9, again, if we're assuming the Jewish uh, chronology for Jewish mm -hmm. history, uh, it really, really takes us about 120 years after the death of Jesus. It's certainly not going to help Christianity at all. No. So that's really, uh, you know, sort of the... the now, can I ask you a question? Yeah. Let, let, let me ask a question about that, just to get this straight in my head. There are, uh, you said there are two dates as to when uh, historians believe uh, that the temple was destroyed. There is a commonly held Jewish understanding as to the date. And the other date is held primarily by whom? By, by non-Jewish historians, secular historians. Secular uh, historians. So what, even, what you're telling me... Even, or yeah? even Jewish academics who might agree with the secular historians. But, you know, Judaism has maintained its own calendar. We've maintained our own history books. We have uh, very, very ancient history books that go through our own history. So we have been keeping track of what happened to us... So according to course, our internal, <laughs> our internal, uh, you know, records. records, the temple was destroyed in the year 423 before the Common Era BCE. Mm -hmm. Yeah, commonly yeah. held date would be 586 BCE. Now, and 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 upon that, so I'm just getting this straight in my head. And upon that, uh, the Christians rely on on the the secular view. Uh, in order to have a chance of, of making this work. And uh, I, I have a, a question then, and perhaps you, don't, you may not know this, but it might be uh, something worth investigating for the next uh, time we talk. When was that first proposed? Uh, historically, do we know who was the first person responsible for tying these uh, dates together in such a way that it kind of worked for the uh, Christian perspective? Well, I think that uh, in this book that I mentioned, The Challenge of Jewish History, he discusses, mm -hmm. he actually has a whole theory to explain how this difference of uh, dating emerged. And uh, I think he actually does try to suggest, uh, you know, exactly when it took place. When did this error creep in to the counting? Ah. Uh, that will be fascinating. So that's a book by Alexander Hull. What I'll do is I'll find that, uh, put a link on this post, and also the article by Brad Aronson. We'll, yeah. we'll see if we can find that. And that's put online. The link fixing the history books. Basically, what happens is there was a. Uh, it's really a question of how many Persian kings, uh, you know, reigned during this mm -hmm. period of time, mm -hmm. and uh, that's where the error really creeps in. Um, but again, you know. Jewish people, I believe, would have probably the greatest insight into when their important mm. moments of history took place. Yes, of and course. So, so the, the dating of the decree by Artaxerxes to Nehemiah was not in 444 BCE. It was really in 335 BCE, and that would really take this entire chronology in the book of Daniel and just make it totally irrelevant in terms of getting close to the dates of Jesus. So what I'd like to That's do right. now is to see what's actually going on in verse 25. And we'll do this very slowly. Again, I'll urge everyone to try and make a simple chart as we're going through this, and the dates will be very, very easy to follow. 
So, again, we are now in the year 371 before the Common Era. 371 BCE is when Daniel is praying because of his tremendous frustration. 371, it's the first year of Darius, and again, he was contemplating these two prophecies from the book of, books of, the book of Jeremiah that spoke about the 70 years of Babylon Jeremiah 25, which prophesied that after 70 years, the kingdom of Babylon would come to an end. And then he had just seen this fulfilled with the conquest of Babylon by the Persian Medes, which took place 70 years after the Babylonians conquered Israel in the year 441. 441 BCE is when they first conquered Israel. And 70 years later, Babylon came to its end. Mm-hmm. Jeremiah 29 prophesied that after 70 years, the Jewish people would go back to their land. And again, Daniel assumed these two prophecies were congruent and that after the 70 years, Babylon would be destroyed and the people would go back to their land. So he's seen Jeremiah 25 fulfilled with the destruction of Babylon, but he's not seen any forward motion, any indication that the Jewish people are going back to their land. So clearly, Jeremiah 29 is not happening as far as he's concerned. So again, he assumes that either the promise of returning to Israel has been retracted or it's been delayed because of the sins of the people. And what does Daniel do as a great leader? He begins to confess and pray for forgiveness. Yeah, and it's a prayer that is, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is unparalleled. This is quite a unique uh, and, and very heartfelt prayer that I don't know that we even see anything like this in the Psalms. Would that be fair? Um, I don't know if we have anything similar because in the Psalms, David has prayers of confession and forgiveness, but usually for his own personal failures. And here it's really um, Daniel praying for the entire people. And mm. he, he includes himself, even though he, he was certainly not a sinner. He, you know, basically there's a corporate uh, responsibility and he's part of the group and the group is suffering. He understands that, mm. he understands there must be some sin that's holding things back. That's his assumption. So the angel now, after his tremendous, beautiful prayer, uh, the angel comes, the angel Gabriel, Gabriel comes to explain how he was mistaken in the way he understood these prophecies in Jeremiah. And that's what I'm going to try to explain now. And, and let me just mention, there is a reason uh, as to why, and it's given in, in verse 22, because the angel says, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you, and here it is, for you are greatly beloved, therefore consider the matter and understand the vision. I mentioned that. Because, uh, as you said, uh, where does the counting of the seven begin? Uh, it would make no sense if Daniel wasn't given that information because he's greatly loved. Right. And, and the angel here says several times, by the way. He doesn't just say it once. He repeats it. I'm going to give you clarity and understanding. Mm. And he's sort of mm. laying it on very thick, right? That, mm. that he's saying, basically, Daniel, after our meeting... You're going to be totally clear as to what's happening. So here's basically what the angel's going to tell him. The angel's going to really tell Daniel several things, and it's important for the listener to keep this in mind, that there's going to be several things now that Daniel's being told. Number one, he's going to find out that the 70 years of Jeremiah 25, he was correct, 
that they recounted from the conquest of Israel by Babylon, which took place in 441 BCE. However, the promise of returning to the land, which was in Jeremiah 29, after 70 years, was not going to be counted from the conquest of Jerusalem, but from the destruction of Jerusalem. And that took place 18 years afterwards, meaning that the Babylonians didn't come and conquer the land and immediately destroy Jerusalem. They first came and conquered the land and only destroyed Jerusalem 18 years later. And what Daniel's being told is that the chronology for determining when Jerusalem will be rebuilt is going to start from when it was destroyed. Jeremiah 29 speaks of the return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. So the 70 years are counted from the destruction of the temple. Mm -hmm. Now this is actually hinted at in Daniel chapter 9 verse 2, which speaks of the destruction of Jerusalem rather than the conquest of Israel. You go back to Daniel chapter 9 verse 2. Yeah, I'm just looking at it now. It says, I, Daniel, understood the books, the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Right. It's really, it's the whole chapter here really is going to begin from the destruction of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Now, 70 years after it was destroyed, now again, Jerusalem was destroyed in the year 423 BCE. So, 70 years later was 353 BCE, which was actually when the building of the second temple commenced. So, right. Jeremiah's prophecy was accurate, meaning that he predicted 70 years after Jerusalem was destroyed, it's going to be rebuilt. And so, in the year 353 BCE, the rebuilding of the second temple commenced. Mm-hmm. Now, this is 18 years, though, from the present moment when Daniel is in the middle of this prayer. It's 18 years away. So, but that's one thing that Daniel's being told. He's being told that you made a mistake, Daniel, in when you began your calculations of the 70 years in Jeremiah chapter 29. Those 70 years don't begin from the initial conquest of Israel by the Babylonians. That 70-year period leading up to the rebuilding of the temple, going back to Israel rebuilding the temple, that begins with the destruction of Jerusalem. It's 18 years later. The second thing that Daniel's going to find out, and it's really the more important piece, is that the angel is coming to give Daniel some very, very good news about the return to the land which would be much more imminent. And this is actually the focus we saw of his concern. When are we going to be going back? So he tells Daniel, again, that after seven weeks of years, which means after 49 years, an anointed ruler is going to come. So 49 years after the destruction of the temple is going to be the coming of this anointed ruler. And don't forget that the starting point of the angel's chronology is from the destruction of the temple. That's the chronology that Gabriel is revealing to Daniel. And again, it's a starting point that Daniel has access to because it happened already. It happened just over 50 years prior to this moment when Daniel is praying. And remember that the Christian starting point for the angel's chronology was 35 years in the future ahead when Daniel would have no idea when to begin counting. So here's the question, and this will make things, this is going to now tie everything together and I believe make it clear for all of us. 
So when the angel speaks about an anointed ruler, a Mashiach Nagid, Mashiach Nagid would be anointed ruler that Daniel is told will come after 49 years, who is this anointed ruler that the angel is speaking about? Mm -hmm. And who is this anointed ruler that has anything to do with Daniel's concern about going back to the land of Israel? Well, in the very next year, which would be the year 370 BCE, right? This, our story is taking place in 371. So in the very next year, 370 BCE, something important is going to happen. Cyrus mm -hmm. is going to replace his father-in-law, Darius, yes. as the ruler of Persia, right? Because we know that this chapter 9 of Daniel is taking place in the first year of Darius. Mm -hmm. He's not going to last very long on the throne. He's actually having a very short career. And we right. know that he, he was replaced within the year by his son-in-law, Cyrus. Now, this finds us in the book of Isaiah, doesn't it? Isaiah chapter 45. Okay, so what happens here? So Cyrus, we're going to see, is the one that tells the Jewish people they can return to their land. Hmm. Now, don't forget, the angel Gabriel is telling Daniel that this person who's going to send you back to the land is a messiah is a mashiach and an anointed one who's a ruler mm. so is cyrus really an anointed ruler well we know that he was the ruler he was the head of the persian empire and in the book of isaiah we're going to see that cyrus is called god's anointed one god's messiah well from from may i read from 4428 is yes. that okay let's look at 4428 uh, isaiah 4428 mm, who says of cyrus he is my shepherd he shall perform all my pleasure saying to jerusalem you shall be built and to the temple your foundation shall be laid and 45 verse 1 it says thus says the lord to his anointed to cyrus whose right hand I have held to subdue the nations before him and to loose the armor of kings. That was the critical verse, verse 1, chapter 45, mm. where God is speaking to his anointed one, to his Messiah. So there you see Cyrus is specifically identified as a Messiah. And if you just jump a few verses further to verse 13... So God says yes. there, I aroused I raised him. him up. Yeah, I've, ra I've raised him up in righteousness, and I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city and let my exiles go free, not for price nor reward, says the Lord of hosts. It's an amazing thing. Oh, so that's great. already Isaiah predicted a long time ago, by the way, this is like an amazing thing Isaiah predicts way in advance. Mm. That, I, that Cyrus is going to be God's instrument to go back, to have the people go back after their exile. And so when Daniel is told here, look, Daniel, there's going to be an anointed ruler, a Messiah, who's going to come after 49 years, and that's literally the next year. It's going to, in the coming year, it's going to happen. So we know who this anointed ruler is. It's going to be Cyrus, and we know from the book of Isaiah here that Cyrus is called God's Messiah, God's anointed one, and he is specifically God's instrument to have the people go back to their land. Now, this is echoed and it's repeated two other places in the Bible, very critical and important sources for us. One is in the book of Ezra, the very beginning of the book of Ezra, chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, where it says, And in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, at the completion of the word of the Lord from the mouth of Jeremiah, that the Lord aroused the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, 
and he issued a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also in writing, saying, So said Cyrus, the king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of the heavens delivered to me, and he commanded me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judea. And Ezra continues, Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him, and may he ascend to Jerusalem, which is in Judea, and let him build the house of the Lord, God of Israel, he is the God who is in Jerusalem. So Ezra tells us that this is exactly what happens, that to fulfill the word of God to Jeremiah the prophet, that's obviously the prophecy in Jeremiah 29, to fulfill that word, God sends Cyrus to be the one to send the Jewish people back to Israel. And then, amazingly, if you go to the second book of Chronicles, chapter 36, verses 22 to 23, and by the way, as a point of information, these are the last two verses in the entire Tanakh. Um, most Christians, if you ask them what's the last book of the Tanakh, they'll assume it's Malachi, Malachi. Mm. But in the Jewish Bible, the last book of the Tanakh, the very last book, is Second Chronicles, and the last two verses basically are echoing what we just read in Ezra. The last two verses say, And in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, at the completion of of the word of the Lord in the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord aroused the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, and he issued a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and he put it also into writing, saying, and now we have the last verse in the Tanakh, So said Cyrus, the king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth has the Lord God of the heavens delivered to me, and he commanded me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judea. Who among you is of all his people? May the Lord his God be with him, and may he ascend. So now we see how, when we look at Scripture organically, we look at the Bible as a whole, how all things come together here, that what the angel tells Daniel is incredibly clear. Um, And what becomes clear is, number one, Verse 25 is telling us about the coming of Cyrus, who would be the instrument that God uses to send his people back to Israel to fulfill the prophecy in Jeremiah 29. Um, But now that we know this, it should be absolutely clear that verse 25 in the ninth chapter of Daniel has absolutely nothing to do with Jesus, number one. Because Jesus comes about 400 years after the temple was destroyed. Gabriel was telling Daniel about someone who's going to come imminently. The second problem is that Gabriel is speaking about an anointed ruler. Jesus was never anointed and never ruled. So it's very clear that Daniel 9, chapter 9, verse 25 has absolutely nothing to do with Jesus. Now, for those who want to study this out a little bit deeper, I'm not going to go into this because... Uh, it'll just take us too long. There's a key term in Hebrew specifically that ties all of this together, and it's the Hebrew davar or devar. Um, devar means word, but in the context of these passages we're, we're studying, it refers to a divine word of prophecy. Mm-hmm. And uh, you'll see that this comes up in Jeremiah 29, verse 10. Mm-hmm. It speaks about God's word. And it comes up in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. And in Second Chronicles 36, verse 22. You'll see that they all make reference to this specific word of prophecy. 
And this would be, uh, I mean, Daniel uses this in the verse that I read in uh, chapter 9, verse 2. Is that correct? Exactly. Because he says, okay, uh, just one more time. It says uh, uh, that Daniel understood by the books of the number of the years specified by the word, Devar, of the, of the Lord through Jeremiah. It's 100%. Beautiful. Okay, now we're going to try and uh, go a little bit further, and we'll encounter one more serious difficulty. So far, um, the message of Gavriel would be very encouraging to Daniel. Everything we've discussed so far, it seems great, great news, that Cyrus was just around the corner, and he'd give the directive for the people to return to their land in the very next year. And this is the first part of what Daniel 9.25 is speaking of. However, the angel is also going to give Daniel some very difficult news. Because verse 25 goes on to say that the city of Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt for 62 weeks of years, 434 years. But there are going to be times of great trouble. And indeed, this is actually exactly what the period of the Second Temple was like. It was a time of tremendous political and spiritual challenges for the Jewish people. So he's given good news that you're going back soon, temple's going to be rebuilt, but he's told, but it's not going to be great times ahead. And then what we'll see next time we meet is that verse 26, the next verse explains how this period is going to end, meaning this period of when Jerusalem's going to be built up for these 434 years it's going to come to an end when an anointed one would be cut off, and then the temple's going to be destroyed. And the angel tells this to Daniel now. So Daniel is getting a dose of very good news and a dose of actually very bad news. But for us to understand the whole chapter of Daniel, so let's remember that the angel initially came and told him of a period of 70 weeks of years. That's 70 times 7. So the angel tells him there'll be a period of 490 years. That's the period of time the angel initially spoke of in verse 24. Now we know the first temple was destroyed in the year 423 BCE. And the second temple was destroyed in the year 69 of the Common Era, which is exactly 490 years later. So when the angel here speaks about this period of 490 years, by knowing Jewish history, we know exactly what 490 years he's speaking of. It's the period between the destruction of the first temple and the destruction of the second temple. Now, a very important key to understanding this passage in Daniel is that the angel is telling Daniel that this period of 490 years of difficulty has been decreed upon the Jewish people for the purpose of purifying the people of their sin. Now, one of the main sins that needed rectification was the failure to observe the sabbatical years. You know, we just read last Shabbat in Parshat Bahar, at the end of the book of Leviticus, in Leviticus 25, we read about the institution of sabbatical years, right, where uh, we'd be able to use our fields, plow and harvest for six years, but in the seventh year we were not allowed to plow and harvest. We had to let the, lie, the land lie fallow. Uh, actually, this year in Israel happens to be a sabbatical year. Mm -hmm. So one of the sins that needed rectification was the failure to properly observe the sabbatical years. If you go to Leviticus chapter 26, 
it speaks about the need for the land to be appeased when the sabbatical years are not observed properly. This is a very serious sin, Mm. and it has to be rectified. So one of the reasons, and it's actually a curious question, when the angel came to speak to Daniel, why did he express this period of time so obliquely? Meaning the angel could have said, Daniel, 490 years have been decreed upon your people. He doesn't say the, the number of years in the simplest way possible. He says 70 weeks, 70 periods of seven years have been decreed upon your people. You see, mm-hmm. he's using language which is reminiscent of the sabbatical years, which is a seven-year yes. cycle. Mm-hmm. So by using language which sort of harkens our ears, it sort of brings our ears back to this institution of the sabbatical years, mm. uh, the angel sort of hinting at the fact that the need to have this period of 490 years to rectify sin Part of that is to rectify the fact that the sabbatical years were not being properly observed. Mm-hmm. Now, what is going to happen during this period of 490 years? So, basically, what is supposed to happen is that if the people use these years of tribulation properly, again, we're told it's going to be very difficult times, but there are years of purging, years of purification, years of rectification. And we're given really here an opportunity. This period of 490 years that's been decreed is a time that has the potential. We as the people, the Jewish people, had the potential to be totally purified of their sin after this period of 490 years would end. And then they'd be ready for the utopian messianic age and all the lofty promises that were made in verse 24 which said that after the 70 weeks were decreed in order to bring about a time of complete righteousness, the end of sin, to seal the prophecies, and to anoint the Holy of Holies. Mm -hmm. So what emerges here is that this period of time of 490 years needs to pass before the Messiah can come. That means that it isn't until the second temple is destroyed that the possibility of Messiah coming can be realized. That's why, by the way, that the sages in the Talmud teach us that the Messiah is born on Tisha B'Av, the day that the temple was destroyed. The Messiah is born at that meaning because that's the day in which the Messiah can finally come. Because that period of time going from the destruction of the first temple to the destruction of the second temple, that 490 years is the period of 490 years that Daniel 9.24 speaks about that was decreed as a period of time in which the Jewish people have the opportunity to totally rectify all their sins. And if they do it, then all the promises of 9.24 of the utopian messianic future of an end of sin and, and complete righteousness and anointing the Holy of Holies, that can happen. Now, this is the exact opposite of what Christian apologists often insist. They often mm. claim that the Messiah has to come before the Second Temple is destroyed. That's basically the most common <laughs> claim that's made by Christian apologists is that you see from the book of Daniel that the Messiah has to come before the destruction of the Second Temple. Actually, a careful reading of Daniel 9 reveals that it's only after the destruction of the temple that we then have the possibility of being worthy of the Messiah coming. If we use these 490 years properly, 
It could happen immediately after the second temple is destroyed. However, if we don't learn the proper lessons from this period of tribulation, and we don't purify ourselves properly, then it will require even more time after the destruction in order to bring about the messianic redemption, which is where we find ourselves right now. We still, as, as a Jewish people, we have yet to get our act together. Mm. Uh, we've still yet to finally bring about all the rectification needed to bring about the Messianic Age, because let's not forget what the Bible consistently teaches us. You see it in Deuteronomy chapter 30, in the beginning of that chapter. You see it in Isaiah chapter 59, verse 20, that the Redeemer will only come to Zion when Israel has turned from their sins. That it's basically in our hands. Redemption depends upon national repentance and national spiritual revival of the Jewish people. And Daniel was told here sort of bittersweet news. The bittersweet news was, look, Daniel, you're going to go back to Israel. You're going to rebuild the temple, but it's not going to be there forever. It's going to only last for less than 500 years because you need that period of time as a nation to purge yourselves, to purify yourselves, to repent of your sins, to cleanse yourself of your sins. And then, if you do that properly, you'll be worthy and ready for the Messiah to come. As soon as that temple is destroyed, that's when it could happen. And that's basically the message that Daniel is given in chapter 9 here, up until verse 25. What we'll see next time we meet is that he's going to be given in verse 26 the sort of the details of how the second temple is going to come to an end. Um, and so, God willing, we'll see that next time we meet. I began by saying, uh, when we first started looking at Daniel, that Daniel isn't my favorite book uh, <laughs> in the Tanakh. But I have to say, uh, thanks to you, I'm beginning to warm to it. And uh, this has been one of the most enlightening programs I think I've ever done in, in regards to the book of Daniel. Uh, you've given me much to think about, no doubt the listeners as well, but I've, I've written so much down and made so many notes uh, as it was when we were, were going through You were very quiet. You were very quiet. I was very quiet, and I was, <laughs> I was scribbling and scribbling and scribbling, and I've, I've got a lot to go through, and I just want to thank you for that. There's, uh, there's a lot uh, for me to, and as you say, it's like putting on your tie when you're looking in the mirror. Uh, and a timeline would certainly serve. So I would encourage uh, the listeners to do that just to get it straight. That's what, uh, in your head, that's certainly what I'll be doing. Now, speaking about putting your tie on uh, when looking in the mirror and how confusing that can be, I may be suffering from that. I have a question maybe you can help me with before we sign off. Have you got time? Sure. Ezekiel chapter 14. In Ezekiel chapter 14, and specifically in verses 14 and 20, it makes uh, 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 mentions three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job. Uh, the verse says in 14, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would uh, deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says uh, the Lord God. Now, our, in, in Jewish understanding, is this Daniel that we're talking about today? I believe it is. Now, you know what? The reason why I ask that is because having grown up in the church, we are told, no, it's not. And I'll read to you the, uh, the, the little study note that I have in my New King James. It says, Noah, Daniel, and Job. In this list, Daniel seems out of place among the other two men of faith, Noah and Job. Daniel was a younger contemporary 
of Ezekiel in Babylon, uh, whose greatness, whose, whose greatest exploits were likely still to come. Now, is the reason why they have written this study note is because of the chronology, because of the Christian chronology that they rely on in order to make Jesus enter into the gates uh, at the right time. I think that might be part of the problem. But yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm certain really that Ezekiel here is referring to our Daniel. Hmm. Um, now, it's interesting, by the way, that he does mention Job, Eov. Now, hmm. according to some opinions among Jewish sages, Eov was not a real character. Uh, you know, there are some sages who say that the book of Job was really uh, a parable mm-hmm. and, and not about a historical figure. So that's interesting there that, you know, Ezekiel seems to be, it seems at least on the surface to be mentioning someone that's a historical figure here. Um, and that would have to be explored. I never really thought about yeah. that. But yeah, it's, I, I'm almost certain that the Daniel in Ezekiel is our Daniel. Fascinating, and even when I was in the church, I will say that always bothered me. Why would it be another Daniel? Why would it? We don't have another. Do we have another Daniel in the church? No, time? there isn't. As far as I know, another Daniel does not exist. There it is, my dear listeners. Isn't that fascinating? Thank you so much, Rabbi Skobak, Rabbi Michael Skobak of JewsforJudaism.ca, Jews for Judaism in Canada. Go there to the website. There is oh so much more. And of course, the YouTube channel as well, a plethora of information and resources uh, available for you there as well, dear listeners. So thank you again, my friend. I look forward to getting back uh, next time when we will delve into uh, verse 26 and on. And until then, dear listeners, be blessed and be set apart by the truth of our Father's word. Shalom. Shalom.